HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market, a dynamic leader in the quality food business, a mission-driven company that aims to set the standards of excellence for food retailers. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. Broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Welcome to Cooking Issues. This is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live on Tuesday, about five, ten minutes late in the back of Roberta's Pizzeria in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Calling your questions live to 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. Joining the studio, as usual, with uh, Nastasha, the Hammer Lopez, Joe, and Jack in the in the booth. How you guys doing? Great. Yeah? You doing well, Nastasha? Yeah, I just became members of Heritage Radio Network, so we're, we're pretty happy with you. Who, Booker and Dax, LLC, or Cooking Issues, the show? Yeah, you guys, Nastasia and, and you. Oh, as humans? Nice. Well, well, congratulations to us, and thank you, Nastasia, for signing us up for that. $120 in the whole. Yeah? Each? E- each. Yeah? Nice. All right. Worth it. Worth it. Worth every penny. Uh, by the way, I'm, it looks like I'm horribly out of shape. Today on the Williamsburg Bridge. No sympathy. Today on the Williamsburg Bridge. No sympathy. This guy. I didn't ask for sympathy. You know, I like how... See, Nastasha... Again, this is another thing about Nastasha. No, those of you don't know... You don't left know, at 11.55. For those of you that don't know what's going... I didn't say I'm late as a result of being out of shape. I said I'm horribly out of shape. Nastasha creates conversations in her head and assumes that they've already taken place and then makes conclusions based on those conversations that she thinks has already taken place. Like, for instance, me saying, I'm late because I'm out of shape instead of I'm leaving early. I'm just merely stating the fact that I'm out of late. Now, I'll continue with my story that has nothing to do with me being late. It has to do with me being out of shape, Nastasha. Uh, the, um, this guy passes me at the beginning of the Williamsburg Bridge, and he's on the straightaway, so I figure I'll catch up to him because I very rarely get passed because I bike uh, not because I'm in shape or because I'm athletic, neither of which is the case, but I get extremely angry when I ride the bicycle, and as Nastasha knows, anger increases my physical abilities. Not in a Hulk-like sense, but just, you know, anger, right, Seth? Right. Yeah. Anyways, guy beat me by 30 seconds at the top of the bridge. I could not believe it. I'm going to have to go into some sort of training regimen. Uh, the reason I'm late, actually, is because I didn't follow my own advice, because I'm a moron, to come here and do my research from Roberta's instead of doing it from home. That's the reason I'm late, uh, Nastasha, for your information. Uh, <clears throat> anyways, let's go to some questions, because I have a reduced amount of time. On the Lucama, which I promised I'd answer, uh, the question was, uh, 
can you use lucuma powder? Uh, is there a substitute for lucuma? Lucuma is this uh, fruit that I think some people think is a superfood or something. I don't know. It comes from uh, Peru. And I said that I thought I'd use something similar to it in Colombia, and then I would come back once I'm back from Colombia, which I am now, got back on Monday, uh, would, uh, you know, maybe you could use instead, or that I'd try to use some of its properties to figure out a substitution. Turns out, uh, I was completely incorrect, and memory, my memory was completely wrong. When I researched my memory when I got back, because I didn't see anything similar to it, what I remembered is, is that, Nastasha, you'll have to tune in for this and tune out of your uh, uh, Zappos uh, uh, session there. The, uh, it's not, uh, it wasn't anything in Columbia I had that was similar to Lucuma. It's Canistel. Remember Canistel? Yes. The egg fl- fruit that we had in the uh, Fruit and Spice Park? Mm-hmm. Uh, and based on that, there is a taste component to it that's important, but it seems to me it's mostly the texture of it that's important because uh, it, it was the texture of that egg custard fruit uh, canistel c-a-n uh, i can't spell it loud but canistel that was so kind of amazing and uh it, there is a producer of canistel that ships when it's in season which is i think december through march or may or something like that uh and uh they're in florida and if you go on localharvest.org and look up fresh gardens they will ship fresh canistel anywhere in um, in the U.S. I don't think you're going to get a powder that's going to mimic those same things. I mean, you could use a hydrocolloid mix to do it, but the thing about the, the thing about the canistel and I guess the lucumo, which I've never used fresh, is it's just extremely dense and custardy on its own, which is probably a combination of high fiber content, low water content, and uh, probably a number of strange polysaccharides that contribute to its to its consistency. So you could try to get that texture just by jacking polysaccharides in it. For instance, locust bean gum or – well, locust bean gum is good for that because guar is expensive now. If you're going to use guar, you'd have to use the flavor-free guar from TIC Gums uh, or some form of thickener. The issue when you thicken something is you – some people say that you uh, – perceive an increased gumminess, which is true. The higher the concentration you use, the more a kind of gummy something is, but sometimes that can be pleasurable. It's just basically managing the expectations of what the texture is going to be and messing around with it to get the texture right. The other issue when you add hydrocolloids is um, once you add them in enough of a concentration to truly thicken, thicken, thicken something, you're masking flavor. And the only way to uh, reduce that masking effect is to increase the flavor profile of what you're what you're using, but um, I'll try to look into it more. It's an interesting problem. I wasn't able to. I wasn't able to get an answer for you, so I, I apologize. Right, Styles? I'm useless, man. Yes. But you you enjoy the uh, the egg custard stuff, right? I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Canistel, delicious. And by the way, uh, if you believe the uh, the wiki folks, uh, Canistel actually tastes better than the lucuma. It's just they don't happen to grow the lucuma. Being the Canistel in I guess Peru, where it's popular, where lucuma is pro- popular. How about that? So stuff we had was actually. Superior. Anyway, okay. Next uh, question uh, from – oh, we had a response actually to our vegetarian gummy question uh, from uh, Andrew. He says, hey, guys. I just thought I might be able to help with the question about vegetarian gummies. On the subject of alcohol – because you know, the person who wrote in wanted to know if they could make an alcohol gummy. Uh, on the subject of alcohol, I've made, an, I've made an alcohol-centered gummy for a product development project in a confectionery school. But the thing is you need a two-shot mogul. And for those of you who don't know what a mogul is, because that's not going to make sense to anyone, mogul uh, is uh, – I think it's a brand name of uh, NIDI Needy or whatever the hell they're pronounced – is uh, uh, of confectionery machines that do starch molding. So it's, it's a whole confectionery line that produces starch molds and then does uh, depositing of candies into starch molds. And they're called uh, moguls. You can look up um, NIDI Mini Mogul if you want to look up the uh, – 
the uh, thing. NIDI starts depo- depositing. Look up Mini Mogul or their other other lines, and they use them for depositing marshmallows, fondants, and uh, you know jellies, all that kind of stuff. Uh, anyways, so uh, wait, where was where, where, where were they? Oh yes, uh, but the thing is, you need a two-shot mogul, and you need to make sure that both your outer gummy and your inner alcohol mixture have close to the same specific gravity, so it's not really possible at home. Which I figured, right? Figured. Okay. Uh, for vegetarian gummies with a really too- chewy texture, however, I would try messing around with either starch, which we've talked about, or uh, gum arabic. Uh, agar is way too short, meaning I guess brittle, to replicate a gelatin gummy, and I personally don't like the cooling effect that comes with high uh, levels of agar. That said, pectin is my favorite for gels, has such a great flavor release and texture. Thanks for everything you do, Andrew. Ah, and the one that you is really easy for you to do at home. It's not starch. It doesn't require a lot of cooking, and I hadn't thought of is the one he mentions, which is uh, gum arabic. Gum arabic is expensive, but what's interesting about gum arabic is it has an extremely high solubility. Uh, so you, but yet, it means you have to use a preposterously high amount of gum arabic. But that said, you have a minimal uh, taste impact with gum arabic on, on your flavors. Uh, so this is an excellent suggestion, but I believe, and I, I haven't had time, because I just read this this morning, to research... Uh, Arabic-based, gum Arabic-based candies, but I'm pretty sure you're going to have to deposit it liquid into a uh, starch mixture and then let it dry for a uh, fairly long period uh, in a relatively controlled environment. Uh, I mentioned, I believe, starch molding once in the past, and there is online available an 18, I think, 90s or 1910s or 20s uh, handbook produced in England on confectionery. It's like the complete confectioner or something like that, and it has an entire section on uh, starch molding and how to accomplish it with techniques that don't require sophisticated equipment, i.e. you can do it at home. It's not state-of-the-art because it's from over 100 years ago, but it's doable at home and it goes through the ins and outs of molding and starch, and it's available free on Google Books. Uh, so that's something maybe you should look into. Another question. Should we take a break or should we take another question? No, go on. Okay, another question. Uh, James writes in with uh, several things. Uh, once uh, thanking us for circulation, uh, circulator info. Uh, dear uh, Jack, Joe, Nastasha, and Dave, I've been really enjoying the show down here in Australia and have a few questions about freezing, shelf life, and tentacles. After learning about rethermalizing, which is what we call reheating so that the government doesn't get mad that we didn't reheat it to an incredibly high temperature, destroying all the flavor and texture and whatnot. After learning about rethermalizing on your show using a thermal circulator, it's become an everyday part of our cooking that has greatly increased the yumminess in our house. It's now routine to make quantities of both stock and prepared meals such as curry soups and other ingredients for more elaborate dishes including wild mushrooms, confit, and octopus. They are prepared and then chilled using good food handling practices including ice baths and flat pans for chilling. Uh, fat pa- flat, excuse me, flat pans for chilling. Then held at 2 degrees C overnight and packed in serve size portions using a chamber vacuum sealer flattened and frozen in layers no greater than 30 millimeters. Uh, by the way, this is a kind of – I love hearing that we've ever said anything that actually makes people's food better, right? I mean that's – that to me is uh, – that's the best. I love that. Like that's, that's the success. That's, you know and, – and before we had uh, you know, a bar or any kind of place when uh, we could actually serve things to people to directly make them uh, – hopefully make them happy. But the only kind of uh, satisfaction we got out of stuff was that people said that the information we gave them helped. So I like that. Anyway. Uh, the freezer is set to negative 19C, which is roughly minus 4 Fahrenheit for you guys uh, here in uh, Fahrenheit land. And using the turbo button, which we don't have, which I assume is a fan speeding thing to increase air circulation on the inside of your freezer, which is a good idea. I wish all freezers had kind of an increased circulation uh, technique on the inside of the freezer to handle large loads like that when they could. In. is rated to handle 19 kilograms of freezing per 24 hours. 
Uh, it is a frost-free model made by Miela uh, Lieber. We get Miela, but we don't get the fridges over here, do we? Mm-mm. I don't think so. It's like, I associate that more with uh, Europe, yeah? Um, it seems to be designed to minimize the freeze-thaw cycle by sealing the drawers and dehumidifying. Uh, my question is, how long can I keep this frozen stuff? The online guides say one month for stock, three for prepared meals and fish, yet the snap-frozen wild-caught shrimp I have purchased have a shelf life of 18-plus months What's the deal? Ah, excellent question. What's the deal? Here's the deal. Um, the freezing uh, shelf life, uh, the, the, the frozen shelf life of products, and this is a dirty secret that no one tells you. When you are uh, looking at the shelf life of a refrigerated product, most people think what you're talking about is how long can it stay in the refrigerator and still be safe, right? Because bacteria can still grow, molds can grow in the fridge. And so in the fridge, shelf life is a safety concern. However, when someone is rating the shelf life of a product, they're actually rating two separate things. They're rating one – is it going to be safe to consume? And two, is it going to taste good, right? So there are plenty of things that exceed their shelf life in the fridge or in the freezer, but are still safe. Now, in the fridge, it actually is dual situation, safety and uh, safety and palatability. In the freezer, it's, ex- it's almost exclusively, shelf life is almost exclusively based on is it going to taste good or cook well once it gets out. And the culprits uh, in a freezer are, one, freeze-thaw over time, right? So they have to assume a general, uh, you know, a certain kind of level of quality of your, of your fridge, freezer rather. So most freezers thermally cycle quite a bit and go up and down, up and down. In any home freezer, not 100% of the water in a product is frozen unless you're talking about pure water ice, because not all of it is frozen, anytime the temperature goes up and down, some more of the concentrated, basically everything that's in your meat, like salt, proteins, all those things, are in a very concentrated solution. They, uh, water increases and decreases, and when every time it does, smaller ice crystals inside of your product tend to grow because the smallest ice crystals typically are going to melt all the way first, and then when they, re- when they refreeze, they'll freeze back onto the larger crystals. So ice crystal size increases over time in your freezer, and as a result, those larger ice crystals penetrate cell walls and whatnot and cause for more drip loss, which means when you thaw it, more of the inside juices of your product are going to drip out, rendering your product more crappy. So the longer period of time it spends in a freezer that's opened and closed a lot and goes through a lot of uh, freeze-thaw cycles, the crappier your product is. And so that's a major influence on shelf life. Another uh, problem with shelf life is things that are exposed to uh, actual atmosphere on the inside of your fridge, whether inside of a package or, uh, or not, tend to um, – what happens is, is they grow crystals on the outside and the, and the surface of the meat become uh, dehydrated due to sublimation and then recrystallization, etc. This is called uh, freeze, um, freezer burn. And so this is a, a situation that deteriorates over time, right? And so this is another reason why certain things have a specific shelf life. You minimize this by reducing any opportunity for your pro- the product's surface to not be covered. So if you're vacuum bagging, this reduces a lot of that. Or even if you're bagging something and you remove most of the air – such that all the surface is in contact with uh, something that's going to prevent sublimation of, of water, you're preventing that. The third thing is, is that because you're actually in a concentrated
dehydrated solution and not totally frozen, right? Uh, certain oxidative changes and other changes, enzymatic changes, whatnot, can take place in a freezer. Rancidity of fats is one that's uh, very well known. Fats can become more rancid in the freezer if they're stored. Uh, and you're reducing that by vacuuming at a high level of vacuum. So you want a, you know, a high, high level of vacuum when you're doing this. And that's going to retard those kinds of things, thereby increasing uh, the shelf life on the inside of a freezer. So the steps that you're taking, right, should ensure that you have a very long shelf life, right? The one thing you should note is that freezing is not a prevention. If freezing doesn't kill bacteria necessarily, so the safety of a product when you go when it goes into the freezer isn't any better than it is when it comes out. The freezer just arrests uh, kind of any sort of bacterial degradation during its freeze time. Uh, if you actually want to preserve things for a dang near infinity, you need a freezer that actually does freeze all the way down to the point where everything thing in the product is frozen, and for that you need a super deep freeze like our friends Mark Ladner has over there at the Del Posto that keeps things at like minus 79, uh, I think Fahrenheit or Celsius, I forget which, which uh, in French is dang cold, and most people can't do it at home, and in there there's no uh, liquid water left in the substance at all, and so in essence it's in uh, suspended animation. Okay, next, I'm a big fan of the sous vide octopus tentacles as they are tender, but don't have the honeyish taste that seems to come out when cooked conventionally for a long time in stews. Um, my question is, uh, sorry, uh, cooking stews. After much experimentation ruling out suppliers, uh, I got octopus from Victorian and West Australian sources. I've worked out that timings uh, in the both Under Pressure book and the Modernist Cuisine book result in an overcooked pappy mess that falls to bits or delaminates, for want of a, uh, want of a better word. Prior to sealing, the legs are blanched for 45 seconds in a big pot of water and sealed to a medium vacuum. The size of the octopus doesn't seem to influence the time that much of cooking, but the com- about, uh, common across any cooking time is that the legs seem to lose a lot of fluid that sets and sets in much the same way as a gelatin, and they never seem to look like the pictures. Not that I'm complaining, they still taste good, and the octo-goo makes a great addition to sauces and, to, and makes a mean ramen. Doing some tests, I've worked out that the timing needs to be reduced 1, point, uh, 1 to 1.5 hours, about 25 to 30% of the recommended cooking times. By the way, uh, under pressure, I consulted it, and uh, their recommended octopus uh, cooking is 77 degrees Celsius for 5 hours. Um, but size seems to make little... Uh, whoa. These can be big critters where I come from with uh, four tentacles weighing in at over 1.8 kilograms, which is like uh, almost five pounds for us uh, Americans here. But size seems to make little difference. I think this is a result of the practice of tenderizing that occurs down here using a freeze-thaw cycle or a small cement mixer. Uh, but I'm interested to get your take on it, James. Cheers, Ch- cheers James. Uh, I like that. Jeers. from James. From James. That's going to be my sign-off on letters. Jeers. See if anyone gets it. Anyway, uh, so, Nastasha, remember when we cooked that giant octopus? Were you there that day? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so True World Foods, which is a Japanese supplier, and uh, which, you know, Yuji uh, Haraguchi, who now is working here at Roberta's and has his own ramen shop. Yuji! Go Yuji! Anyway, Yuji used to be our supplier from True World, and uh, he once got us a giant octopus tentacle. Remember that sucker? Yeah. That thing was big. Uh, and here's the and we cooked it and before I go on because I'm going to forget to mention it the interesting thing that no one talks about with octopus cookery uh, and that Nils and I used to think about quite a bit and only had a couple times to experiment with is that and McGee talked about it. we talked about it a lot in the McGee Harold McGee classes which I'm going to see next week at Harvard by the way next week uh, cooking issues is going to be in Harvard I'm going to see if I can I got to see if we can do the show from Harvard though you know what I'm saying anyway because we're doing the Harvard uh, lecture again next week uh, okay, octopus, by the way, I'm sorry, I have so many, so many diversions that no one knows what I started talking about, but this, this, you have to excuse me, that's how my brain works. So, 
Um, octopus are like the smartest things, uh, like the, one of the smartest things in the in the ocean. They only live for like two, like some are even shorter, but like the big ones, like two, three years. And then after they, uh, either the males, after they do their business, you know what I mean, with the women, right? They uh, go senile and just start wandering around on the floor and let themselves get uh, of the ocean and start letting themselves get eaten by anything that goes around. They go, it's called senility, it's senescence. So this is literally what happens. The males do that, right? And then they're like, man, and they wander around the floor and just get eaten and taken apart and stuff like that. The female octopus, go, whatever, they don't give a crap anymore. It's like literally like they just wander around on the floor of the ocean drunk and crazy and then get eaten. The female octopus holds itself up, like doesn't eat anymore and sits there with its funnel just uh, airy, like, you know, blowing uh, uh, water over the surface of its eggs to prevent uh, kind of parasites from attaching and to protect them in case the... The uh, poop hits the fan down there. Then as soon as the eggs hatch, she wanders off and dies and starves or whatever, and it's done. Yeah. So anyway, so there are these weird things that are, uh, that are incredibly smart, like kind of amazing. They have amazing skin, amazing abilities, like cephalopods in general, of which octopus is my favorite. Uh, it, although probably not to eat. Probably squid is my favorite to eat, cephalopod. Mm. I think it goes like this. I think it goes squid. Then octopus, cuttlefish being dead last in my, in my cephalopod ranking of eating. Anyway, they're like incredibly smart and if they live for even like, you know, twice or three times as long, it's, it's my feeling that we would have octopus butlers on like, uh, in like aquariums on motors like following us around like doing our work for us because they would have evolved to that much higher level of thinking. And if they lived an order of magnitude longer, like 30 years, I have no question that they would have evolved to the point where they'd be out here just kicking our behinds left and right and that we'd be in little cages and they'd be marveling at how well we could unscrew a jar with our tentacles, really? i.e. fingers. Yeah, man. They're really amazing creatures, but delicious. Anyway, something you might not know is that the different tentacles of an octopus taste different, right? Uh, so they have dominant tentacles and non-dominant ten- tentacles. So that's an interesting thing, especially because we usually eat octopus like hacked up in a salad. There's no way to know. And also, the texture of the tentacle is radically different depending on where in the tentacle you get it. So we did a comparative tasting of this giant octopus tentacle from the base of the tentacle all the way to the tip. And it's been m- many years since we did it, uh, but I believe the sweet spot was somewhere uh, like towards the first third of the, of the tentacle. I, not the thin part. You didn't like the thin part, right? That's the more rubbery part. Really That's the more rubbery part. Uh, and by rubbery, I mean like the same texture as the small part of the lobster claw. You know the small part of the lobster claw has that weird texture? Yeah. So the, uh, I believe the tip of the tentacle has that kind of a texture more, which makes sense if you think about it. Uh, but you don't want the very base either. I think it was the, the be- like right around the first third. And you could do that in this tentacle because it was like three feet long. It was crazy. Uh, and so uh, the way we did it similar to the way you did. We did Japanese style where it slowly dipped tentacle point first so that it curls into itself, then put in a bag and vacuumed. And it does indeed release a lot of goo and this is the difference between oven cooking something uh, or or pot cooking something and doing it in a bag because the one thing that people always uh stop don't think about or rarely think about when they're cooking in a vacuum bag is there's no reduction inside that bag at all and so what that means is all the juices that are exuded from the meat itself end up in the bag uh that said so you're not going to get that concentration, which is where that honeyness is coming from that you get if it's kind of reducing in its own goo over time in an oven. 
Uh, that said, that Octogoo is delicious, but I don't think there's any way that you uh, can get around uh, get around that. As for the other problem you had, which is uh, the shorter cooking time, I haven't done a comparative study. I know about freestyling, which talking about before is basically ice crystals rupturing the uh, flesh so that when it thaws out, it, it it's going to drip, but then also be more tender. Uh, that works, uh, and so does uh, the technique we call beating the hell out of, which is also practiced by some people. But I myself have never run a comparative study of a non-frozen versus a fresh octopus, and I've never run a comparative study of a beaten the hell out of versus not the beaten the hell out of, of an octopus. So I can't really speak to whether or not your octopus is different from our octopus, and by that I mean whether your octopus is different from Nathan Mirvold's octopus and uh, Thomas Keller's octopus, which are the two uh, sources that you cited. Um, That said, some people like their octopus to be a pappy mess, which I I don't. I I like a little more tooth in uh, in the octopus. Uh, Nastasha, what do you like, a mushy mess or more tooth? Tooth. Tooth. Yeah, so it could just also be a matter of taste because one person's mush is another person's uh, tender. And so I think that's a nice way of saying it, right? Yeah. So I, I don't know. It's really all a matter, matter of taste. I didn't time it when we did it. We literally did it by pulling the bag out of the water and squeezing it. We also, I believe, did it at a much higher temperature. I don't think when we do our tests, we did our tests at 77. Um, I think we did it a good bit higher, like 85. So I can't really speak to it, but we did not cook for five hours. There's no way on God's earth we cooked that thing for five hours. We just kept pulling it out of the bag. Uh, and and squeezing it. In our opinion, the amount of time did make a difference uh, based on size. And the reason I say this is because the tips of the tentacles were definitely done from the base of the tentacles. So the size did make a, a significant difference in our opinion. But that also could be that the different parts of the muscle were different. So we didn't test – we didn't basically – we're schmucks. We're schmucks. What we should have done is, is taken the octopus tentacle and sectioned it all the way down in an exactly uh, you know, same-sized uh, strip all the way down and tasted it along the length. But you can't do that either because uh, octopus muscle, uh, the way it's structured, uh, it, it, it's a, uh, it's, what do they call it? An, it's a hydrostat, hydraulic hydrostat, something like that. There's a word for the way octopus muscles work. And it's the same way that our tongue works. Our tongues are articulated such that we can move them in any direction even though there's no bones. And so there's a particular muscular arrangement in an octopus, same as an elephant's trunk, that allows that to happen. And so uh, taking an internal portion of it is not going to be the same as taking the external portion. So you can't win. Turns out, as usual, Nastasha. You can't win. Wait, you never wrote the post on that, did you? No, of course I never wrote the post on that. I just have the information in my head. I never wrote the post. We had the pictures. It was Piper who did it. Uh, and as a uh, shout out to someone who's going to buy the Bamex, cleaning the Bamex, this is also from James, uh, cleaning the Bamex is really easy. Run it in hot soapy water, then clean water and wipe down the housing. The blades grip really well and I've used the units that are 25 years old and are still going strong. Make sure you get a 240 watt for home use. Badass power. Bamex from James. Uh, it's not our commercial. It's James. I was just reading it with my commercial voice. Yeah. With that, let's take our first break. Cooking issues. So you don't shun the devil with your rock and roll load. Knows that country music's gonna save your soul. The in that rhythm and blues that sound. It's gonna get you some in the end. That is sad And those things that took you in To God the fearing man The redeemed one at that The one who comes from people with him You're not the music show That rock game Oh, to escape Today's program has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Did you know that pollinators are needed for more than two-thirds of the world's crop species? 
Most of these pollinators are bees. However, North America's bee population has been steadily declining since the 1990s. Whether you live in the country or the city, you can show your commitment by hosting a hive in your backyard or even on a rooftop. The beekeeping movement is growing, so you're sure to find swarms of folks who can help you find your way. Learn more about the ways you can help be the solution at wholefoodsmarket.com slash share the buzz. Really, Jack? Really, Jack? Be the solution? So what music are we listening to? Uh, more of Damon's band, Brothers. Damon Bolte! Are we going to give a shout-out to the sh- to the, uh, to the thing next week or not? Are you going to give a shout-out to it? Come to the Heritage Radio! And l- what is the annual fundraising party? It's right here. Our first, first annual first, fundraiser. First annual members-only fundraising party at Roberta's Pizzeria on Sunday, September the what, 8th? You gotta give me the cop. September ninth. I don't have it in front of me. Look, if I'm gonna if I'm gonna scream like monster truck things, you have to have it in front of you. It's impo- it's hard to put the monster truck voice on and ad lib at the same time. Is it sold out? Some additions. Yeah. We have Sellers at Jasper Hill gonna bring cheese. Good. Griptite from Daptone Records is gonna be DJing Funk and Soul with special guests and get this Brian Kenny. The guy you know from the Hearst Ranch commercial will no. be playing songs. No he way. Just play the Hearst Ranch commercial. Well, I, I, now there's something I have to say. If he's not going to play it, we're not doing it. <laughs> That's it. I think he'll do it. Okay. All right, because I was about to walk out. Like I, Nastasha and I have decided that uh, our New Year's resolution last year, and it's a little late, so we'll have to do it again for this year, is to be complete divas at all times, right? Yes. You don't have the yellow Skittles. I'm out. There is Perrier UA, so that means I'm going to be here. Do <laughs> uh, some menu items too. Um, Michael Anthony from Gramercy is doing wood fire roasted market vegetables. Um, nice food, nice man. Harris Hall cooking sockeye salmon, Bristol Bay. Brooks is doing a brown butter sour apricot semi fredo with olive oil croutons. Did I mention what a badass uh, pastry cook man is? Yeah, he is. Yeah, and this one. That's this Brooks Headley. How's this for a menu item description? Pickled <laughs> forest mushroom salad with handmade farmer's cheese, sidewalk greens, and toast. Sidewalk greens. Sidewalk greens. Uh, let me tell you, you can collect lots of sidewalk greens on the Lower East Side. I just don't happen to pick them. I'm a little nervous about the exhaust fumes from the in, in my uh, lambs quarters. I'm assuming these were not from the Lower East Side. I'm assuming it's lambs. Bushwick. Bushwick. I, I'm, I hope not. I'm assuming it's lambs quarters. Those things grow all over the city. Like there's lambs quarters all over the city that you can just pick and use. Like Purslane, I guess. No, no. It's like Oric. It's like man, it's like salad. It's good. It does not. It's not like that. Sours. It's good. But, I mean, again, I've only collected it not next to uh, where I've seen homeless people poop. <laughs> what? That's true. I'm not saying there's homeless poop in this dish, people. You should still pay the money and come to the members-only party. Jack's horrified now. All of a sudden, Jack stops talking about it. I'm out. <laughs> uh, hey, look. Homeless people's poop washes off the same as horse and dog poop does, so don't worry about it. So it's heritageradionetwork.eventbrite.com. How much are the tickets? They're 150 but you're a Cooking Issues listener, so you can use the code Cooking Issues for a $50 discount. Oh, snap. Has anyone used our code yet? Have to check that out. Yeah, uh, uh, are you going to charge more if you come to the door? No, oh, you but should the charge VIP more if you come to the door. VIP is two fifty, and you're yes. at the VIP. And for that, Nastasha will smile at you while right. she has the glass of Pierre Jouet in her hand. <laughs> yeah, that's Only better. <laughs> <in her> <laughs> my, my, one of my favorite things about Nastasha, and this is a true favorite thing, is that this, she is she is a sucker for champagne. Yes. Loves as do I, by the way. I love champagne. 
Love it. And, uh, and Nastasha loves champagne so much that even if we're trying to serve a cocktail, instead of drinking our cocktail to, like, to sell the cocktail that we're making, she's like, crap, I want champagne. I want me some champagne. <laughs> well, if you put strawberry in it, your strawberry. Is that what we're going to do? I think so. Yeah, that's what we're doing. When? Well, it's not going to be strawberry. It's going to be a different fruit that's in season. But something like that. Something like that. Okay. Uh, buy the dang tickets. Support this show by buying the tickets with our code so that people know that this is a PBS thing here, right? This is our PBS pitch so that they know that you know you care about – if you care about quality programming like Cooking Issues Radio, show your support by becoming a member of Heritage Radio today. Right? Does that sound more like what they would say? Mm-hmm. PBS yeah, thank you. Uh, okay, another question from Coef Miles about Coon Recon pressure cookers. I'm a long-time listener to your Cooking Issues radio show, albeit offline and seriously time-delayed via the podcast. The question may be more for David, uh, because Nastasha doesn't care. <laughs> oh, I'm just messing. But I've been experimenting with an eight-quart Coon Recon pressure cooker. I would now like to start making healthy quantities of stock. Uh, that means big. I'm looking for a cooker between 28 and 30 quarts. To date, I have uh, been able to find only aluminum cookers in that size. Since my stove is induction, I need stainless steel cookers or one with a stainless steel bottom plate. Do you guys know where I might look? Thanks in advance. Coef Miles. Nope. There is, as far as I know, no easily uh, purchasable pressure cooker uh, that is uh, that large other than the ones made by uh, American, like American Pressure Cooker, American, it's Wisconsin Foundry, and they make the large ones. And Nastasha, we have one with the screw-down things. You know, that look I knew over. the answer to that question this morning. What? This question? That it was no, yeah. Yeah. So it, I did care. It's, uh, that's fair, fair. I'm going to take that as a smack. By the way, what you're hearing now is Nastasha's, I get beaten on by Dave on the yeah, radio show. The, again, if you guys heard even one-twelfth of what she says to me off air, you would have no sympathy. I'm just saying that because that's her ploy. It's her ploy. <laughs> I looked it up this morning because I was like, this guy thinks I won't know the answer, so he's asking David. Oh, you see, it's 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 actually because you see, you never know what she's going to take personally. You're getting better insight into the Lopez mind here, by the way, folks, which I appreciate. Uh, but there is a simple solution for you. Um, the simple solution is they uh, you can buy this. It's preposterously overpriced, but you can look online for the Max Burton uh, eight inch induction interface disc, and it's just a slug of stainless steel with a handle on it that you put in between the induction burner and your uh, stainless steel, uh, your aluminum in, um, pressure cooker, and with that you can then there also do uh, ceramics glass, you can heat anything because the induction burner is, instead of heating your pot directly, is heating a, a steel slug in between your pot and the thing. It's not as efficient or as fast as, um, as a normal uh, you know, induction in a pot, right, because you're not heating the pot directly, but it is m- still fairly efficient, and I haven't tested it myself, but it should be fairly fast. Not as fast, but fairly fast. won't be on, on, obviously, on ceramics because it takes a long time for the heat to travel through a ceramic no matter how it's applied. But they charge like a hundred bucks for it, which is an outrage. You can just buy a, like a steel plate, like eight by eight or like 12 by 12, but you really want to fit the size of your pot. You can just buy a steel plate online. doesn't have to be stainless even. Stainless is nicer and it won't rust. But uh, anything like that, a slug uh, to put in there. But look at so you can get the basic like look of how it looks. Max Burton 8-inch induction interface disc with heat-proof handle. And that's your solution. If you're worried about putting uh, stuff inside of aluminum because you think that there's a taste issue, although I cook in aluminum quite often, you know, barring certain, you know, highly whatever. Anyway, uh, you can put a bain-marie on the inside of it, a large bain-marie on the inside of one of those pressure cookers and still make a large quantity of stock. Or you can cook directly in the aluminum. 
One last thing. If you have a lot of space, money, and power, you can buy a used autoclave, which is a medical piece of equipment uh, that functions as a pressure cooker. And you can actually use an autoclave as an extremely large pressure cooker. But unless you, uh, you know, you have you have to keep it in your garage or something like that. But that's what they use. They use Frankie, the instrument, uh, the uh, equipment company, sells uh, autoclaves that are repurposed for kitchens. Uh, and also, I think I forget who makes them here. Uh, Market Forge pressure cooker that are basically like autoclaves that are meant for kitchens, but they're not often used outside of industrial institutional cooking here. And in Europe, they're used, like Nils used to use them in Sweden on large amounts of uh, potatoes. Okay. Uh, hi, Dave, uh, Nastasha, Joe, and Jack. This is coming in from uh, Arne Skog in Norway. Um, uh, listen to your podcast yesterday. I have a few tips for the guy who asked about shrimp cakes and sausages. I'm Norwegian. Uh, in Norway, uh, fish cakes are a traditional popular way of processing fish, commonly made from cod, haddock, and pollock. Homemade fish cakes invariably use egg, flour, and potato starch as a binder. It is said that not using a binder renders them short, that is, grainy. Commercially made fish cakes use different binders like tapioca and contain only from 40 to 60% fish. However, I've been experimenting on using a different approach, wanting to use as much fish as possible for flavor, and I've been using a method adopted from research I've done on sausage making. I read some mare, I think, in an article by Lynn Knipe, associate professor of Ohio State, uh, that uh, in the meat department, that regulating the pH value of meat, of meat is a good way of obtaining a good primary bind in sausage. I lost the article in a computer crash and can't find it again, so this is from memory. The article says that a relatively high pH in meat helps solu- uh, solubilize myosin in meats. It also says poor slaughtering practices can result in meats with a low pH value due to improper chilling, uh, and also for animals that freaked out when they die, the pH can drop quick because they have not enough glycogen in them. Anyway, this promotes the breakdown of glycogen in the muscles. However, a higher pH also increases the water holding capacity of proteins. Um, anyway, uh, I've used this experiment to uh, I've used this information to uh, experiment regulating pH in sausage meat, and I usually incorporate sodium carbonate in the salt about one to two percent uh, by weight of salt. I wonder whether he actually means sodium carbonate or whether he means bicarb. I'm not sure. Uh, but go- look up Harold McGee on sodium carbonate versus bicarb. He's basically raising the pH of the meat. This greatly improves the binding capacity of the sausage, sometimes too much, and the sausage becomes rubbery. In those cases, I add vinegar to the sausage meat and mix well, which loosens the texture again. Back to shellfish protein, I've used the same technique with fish cakes uh, with good results and believe it would be worth trying. It's interesting. Um, I've also experienced that the freshness of the fish is important, but I don't know if this is because of pH. What you're talking about there, and he agrees with me on the grinding and stuffing and says to use a sausage stuffer, but they're expensive because the auger in a meat grinder heats up the meat again. You can buy inexpensive sausage stuffers in this country if you go to like Harbor Freight or Northern Tools or Grizzly and buy sausage stuffers that are intended for hunters. They're not as well built as the normal kitchen ones, but they'll work. You can buy a five-pound sausage stuffer for under with a hand crank for under uh, 100 bucks, I think. Um, Okay, so the article he's talking about, which you should read, is by Lynn, L-Y-N-N, Knipe, K-N-I-P-E, Meat Export Research Center of Iowa State University, which is why you had problems, and it's called Use of Phosphates in Sausage. Read it. Uh, it says a lot about phosphates, which increases the water-holding capacity and also helps fat emulsification by uh, altering the ionic balance in there. So go ahead and read it. Uh, Arnie will be in New York in February, March of next year. Are there any classes he can take? I'm going to have Nastasha look into that, and we'll talk about it next, because I don't know what my classes are. They tell me like a day before, and I had to show up and cook them. Kindly, uh, William writes in about milk. Howdy, all! I love making custard-based ice cream. I understand that tempering the egg yolks is a normal procedure, especially for food safety. Are there other benefits to tempering the yolks? Why not use pasteurized eggs, Suvi's pasteurized, or Davidson's brand pasteurizing, and skip the tempering altogether? Also, I live next door to a dairy farm that offers raw milk and cream. My country living folks tell me that I should still pasteurize the raw milk, so I never bothered going there. I've never had raw milk. Does it really taste much better? Okay, first of all, on the custard ice cream, there is a difference between un, uh, like ones that haven't been cooked out and ones that have. If you look at it, a creme anglaise 
noise base is thicker than if you just blended the ingredients together. So I've never tasted side by side, same recipe, cooked uh, normally versus not cooked, okay? But like cooked actually to an anglaise up to like 82 for 15 minutes in a uh, – Celsius for 15 minutes in a, in a circulator. However – um, I'm assuming that you're going to get a faster meltdown in the one that hasn't been cooked out just because there's a higher uh, viscosity in the one that has been cooked. That said, Sam Mason, who's like an ice cream genius, like you know, like like an ice cream savant almost, he's crazy ice cream, delicious, doesn't like the taste of cooked eggs in his custards and doesn't cook, therefore, the custards. And I just started experimenting with low temperature, uh, basically pasteurizing my uh, ice creams at like 60 degrees Celsius or 62 degrees Celsius, which is what I did when I was in Columbia last. And they're great. So, you know, I don't think that there's uh, – in other words, you can make – and Sam makes some of the most delicious ice cream that I've ever had in my life. Uh, and that stuff, uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't cook it out. So I think it's m- mainly a safety issue. Uh, and when I cook for myself, generally, I just take the salmonella risk and eat it without pasteurizing. But I've been having to cook for pregnant people recently, so I pasteurize the stuff out now at like 60. Um, Okay, on raw milk, does it taste better, does it taste worse? I am going to defer to uh, Ann Mendelson, who wrote a book on milk. Uh, and her argument on raw milk uh, versus not raw milk is, I think, incredibly well put. And she basically says that most people who talk about raw milk versus uh, pasteurized milk come at it from some crazy perspective other than taste. And she is a taste person. She says she's had that most pasteurized milk – uh, that you get, it's also homogenized pasteurized milk, by the way, uh, is bad in the supermarkets compared to what the best milk can be. However, <clears throat> just having it be raw uh, doesn't make it better. The best milk she's had have been raw milks, but they've been from you know very small like producers who take a lot of care, have the right kind of cows, have the right kind of feed, and X, Y, and Z. So her main point, which is the best point, and, and you so rarely read food writing where people come at it from what I think is the correct point of view, which is uh, it's not it's it, you know she's not starting from a a preconceived notion of what's best she's saying hey taste is the notion that i'm shooting for what makes it taste better so she's had horrible raw milk and she's had fantastic raw milk and so uh go read her discussion of it in her book on milk uh and see see what you think chris young you know from modernist cuisine you know interestingly points out that it taste is a matter of taste in africa right everyone likes the taste of what we think is ridiculously overcooked milk and if you tried to give them milk that tasted close to coming out of the cow as possible they would think it's awful because they prefer the taste of cooked milk so taste is taste uh while i was doing this i looked up a, a website called uh, realmilkfacts.com which is a shill out for a, a law firm called uh, marler clark and this is a law firm that deals in food poisoning so they're big on they make they make money based on suing people as a result of uh, food poisoning uh, that's that's how they do it. So we, but uh, they they have some uh, interesting things, and from them I got to the CDC. The CDC uh, is on a, a, a basically a crusade now to stop people from wanting to ask for raw milk because they see that there's a huge surge in popularity in raw milk uh, now among kind of health crunchies and then taste advocates, and so they have a big thing. So look up. Uh, uh, realrawmilkfacts.com and they point to these two cases of kids. I would never serve raw milk, by the way, to like a young kid because if they get an E. coli breakout problem with a young kid, there's lots of things you wouldn't serve to a young kid other than just raw milk because of the possibility of a, of a breakdown. Um, I'm not going to have enough time to fully go through... Wait, so classes are the only one they have online... And it's hard to find. Is um, sous vide intensive September twenty eighth, twenty ninth of this month? I don't think they're doing hydrocolloids anymore. Mm. But if enough people, 
No, no, no. We're supposed to training. teach one called Cooking Issues, but like we never, never. Uh, well, maybe you should take that over and do it at the space. Yeah, I don't know. Anyway, uh, <clears throat> uh, I, I think I'm going to have to go more into this uh, pasteurization, not pasteurization, and, and and health and not next week. But I would like to point you to. A, a website before we go that I just, when I was researching this stuff, came across. And uh, the uh, NHS, which is the National Health Services of uh, Britain, which, by the way, I grew up uh, completely frightened of because my, you know, my parents, uh, uh, well, you know, I grew up, my dad's an engineer, my mom's a doctor, and my stepfather's a doctor. So I grew up in kind of a doctory kind of a household. And I, I'm not going to have a time to go into this, but basically, so that, you know, when I was a kid, they were like, you know, you think that the healthcare in Britain is great, but if you're over the age of 65 and you need dialysis, they let you die. This was back in the, like, 80s, so I don't, that's probably not the case anymore. And, and whatever. I'm going to get some calls on this crap. But um, an interesting website that's put out by the NHS is called. Um, how to read health news. Oh, it's called Choices Behind the Headlines. And one of the articles in it is How to Read the Health News by Alicia White. And we need a website like this in this country where it's basically uh, they go and they debunk all of the health-related claims that are made in the news. So like a big news story hits like, uh, you, you know, gastric bypass surgery surges in the UK. And then they'll go and they'll be like, no, it's not actually surged because we're a nation of like, you know, millions and millions of people. And, you know, it increased from like 1,000 to 3,000. So, yeah, it's like three, 300% more, but that's still like a drop in the bucket, stuff like that. And they, they actually break down studies and why they're crap and then also say how the news media is misinterpreting scientific studies and not doing their research. So anyone involved in healthcare uh, and health and uh, research should, in the U.S. should check out how they're doing it in Britain. And we'll talk more about that. Hopefully we'll get a comment on it. And it's called uh, Behind the Headlines on the NHS uh, website, uh, nhs.uk. Look up How to Read Health News by Dr. Alicia White. Uh, and, and that maybe we'll talk more about it next week. If I'm back in next week, we might have to skip a week. Depends on whether we have time when I'm at Harvard. Are we teaching on Tuesday? I don't think so. Midnight. Tuesday exactly, night? Yeah. So then maybe we can do the show live from Harvard with Harold McGee, Cooking Issues! Vicious, vicious vodka. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.